0: Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Israel, Brazil, and a see you in hell from fascist Italy, Italy during World War II. Starting out in the United States, there has been a major drug bust involving a white supremacist prison gang. That gang is the Universal Aryan Brotherhood. Like I said, a white supremacist prison gang, in this case, primarily operating out of Oklahoma prisons. This major drug bust involves the sentencing of its leader, Chance Wilson, a.k.a. Wolfhound. You know, all these, like, white supremacist leaders always give themselves, like, badass names, right? He has been moved to federal prison, along with the sentencing of nearly 70 other people charged with the gang's distribution of meth and other drug trafficking-related crimes. Now, drug trafficking in itself is not necessarily fascistic, but as you might not be surprised to learn based on the name of this organization, the Universal Aryan Brotherhood is a white-only gang that operates in prisons in Oklahoma and is associated with the Aryan Brotherhood, a sort of national umbrella of white supremacist prison gangs, uh, extremely important in neo-Nazi circles. Continuing on with right-wing and white supremacist neo-Nazi-type activity Baked Alaska has gotten two months for his involvement in January 6th. He's been sentenced to two months in prison and several more, I think it's two years, of probation. Baked Alaska was one of the more active of the early alt-right street thugs. You know, he was active in a lot of the street brawls that were taking place in Berkeley and throughout the west of the western United States in 2016, 2017, and even into 2018. His sentencing is part of the ongoing crackdown on those who actually did invade the United States Capitol building on January 6th of 2021. Finally, in the United States, there has been a resolution to the Speaker of the House battle. Now, if you recall from last week, the Republicans took over the Speaker of the House in the United States, and when that happens, the House of Representatives decides who's the Speaker of the House. This is the the leader of the House of Representatives. Usually this is a shoe in, you know, something that has been heavily negotiated and figured out long beforehand. But because of the makeup of the Republican party today, that was not the case. When the Republicans took office in the House of Representatives last week, they were really fractured and 20 of them, generally the, like generally speaking, we're talking about the, the members of the Freedom Caucus. That is the extreme right wing MAGA people involved in the Republican party and the House of Representatives. They engaged in a massive battle, refusing to nominate or to vote for McCarthy, who had been the chosen candidate by the Republican leadership. This has become the longest battle for the speakers since the United States Civil War era, uh, which does not bode particularly well for the organization and functioning of the Republican Party. In order to win, you know, in order to win control of the Speaker of the House position, McCarthy had to make a lot of concessions to these far right-wing Republicans. Among the concessions are that it is now much easier to force a vote to replace the Speaker. Previously, I think you needed like 20 people to vote for a a vote to replace the Speaker, whereas now only one person is necessary in order to say, hey, we want to change who the Speaker is. A lot of these right-wing holdouts held out long enough that they got positions on very important committees in the House of Representatives. These will help them influence legislation, hold up things and also just like increase their importance in Washington, D.C. They've gotten agreements from the Republicans to limit the death stealing, which is typical GOP stuff, you know, trying to prevent the United States from taking on more debt. The other important things is that they are potentially going to pack the House Rules Committee with Republicans, which would enable them to further change the rules of the House of Representatives in order to benefit the Republican Party. They're also going to influence the criminal investigations that the Republican Party and the House of Representatives will be maintaining. So again, McCarthy won, but at great cost. And this shows the power of the right-wing faction in the Republican Party, unlike the power of the left-wing faction in the Democratic Party, which is relatively minor comparatively. Moving on to Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu's government has begun major judicial reforms, severely weakening the Supreme Court in Israel. This is right out the gate of the beginning of their new parliamentary coalition that brings Netanyahu back, to the prime ministership of Israel. Specifically, they're limiting the Israeli Supreme Court's power to oversee the Israeli parliament. This has been a key move by right and authoritarian politicians for a while. We're talking from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil to Viktor Orban to Trump. You know, this is just like standard stuff, attacking the judiciary. Netanyahu's coalition is also reducing the money available to the Palestinian Authority, They're intentionally increasing religious tension by visiting particularly hotbed religious sites of Judaism. Moving on to Brazil, this one is a doozy. On Sunday, January the 8th, thousands of Brazilian right-wingers, all of them dressed in yellow and green, the colors of the Brazilian flag, the colors of the Brazilian national football team, and also the colors of Jerobo bolsonaro they invaded the Plaza of the Three Branches, which functions essentially as Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. in the United States or like Westminster in the United Kingdom. Except imagine if the executive and the judicial branch and the legislative branch were all in the same plaza. You know, three buildings essentially adjacent to one another. What I'm saying is that they invaded the the place where the Brazilian federal government exists. That's what the plaza is in Brazil. A lot of them arrived on buses. They had been taken from elsewhere in the country. Hundreds of them, though, were in Brasilia and had been camped out either at the Federal Plaza, at this Plaza of the Three Branches, or at the military headquarters in Brasilia, demanding military intervention in order to reinstate the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro, the recently ousted right-wing former president of Brazil. Once they had assembled at the Three Branches Plaza, which from from now on I'm just going to be calling it the plaza, once they had assembled at the plaza, they stormed through barricades and dealt with some initial police pushback. You know, there were some tear gassings, there were some, I think, smoke grenades, things like that. But there wasn't so much police involvement in trying to push them out that clearly there was some obvious collusion from security. Some of the security guards, for example, are caught on footage joking around with the protesters even taking photos with them. There's even some evidence that some security people might have been escorting the right-wing people. In any case, they the protesters broke through this initial pushback from Brazilian security forces and made their way into the buildings. Now, it was a Sunday, the Brazilian like actual ministers, people actually involved in the government, weren't there. So what they did was they trashed the place. And by the place, I mean all three places. That is, the major office building housing the Brazilian executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. They destroyed priceless artifacts and priceless pieces of art that, you know, including like portraits of Brazilian politicians from both the 19th and 20th centuries, artworks like statues, and also just like the buildings themselves, which are modernist masterpieces designed by Oscar Neumeier, a socialist architect from the 1960s. Like all of the other manifestations of the Brazilian right wing since Jair Bolsonaro's loss in the October 2022 election, this invasion was an attempt to spark a military intervention on behalf of Bolsonaro. Now, interestingly, Bolsonaro has participated in things like this in Brazil before. Specifically, he participated in a September 7th, 2021 invasion of the Brazilian Supreme Court building, essentially. He has also participated in other attempted coups, for example, the attempted coup on the election of October 31st, in which he and allies tried to prevent Lula voters from getting to the polls. Bolsonaro this time was not there. He's in Florida. He's been bopping around between Miami and Orlando, although right now and you know during this coup itself, he was in the hospital in Florida supposedly for an intestinal blockage. He's in and out of the hospital all the time, so it's not exactly unbelievable, but it's also pretty perfectly timed, you know, almost as if he was like, well, shit, I gotta go to the hospital right now so that nobody can accuse me of having to get involved in this horrible, horrible disaster. Because that is what the invasion of the plaza was. Unlike the invasion of the United States Capitol building on January 6th, there was no particular strategic value to invading these buildings at this time, Because A, like I said, legislators, people involved in the executive branch, the people involved in the Supreme Court, they weren't there. And so what that meant was that the federal government of Brazil, led by Lula, cracked down like hard. Lula quickly signed a security order, taking security away from the governor of Brasilia state, which is where the capital of Brazil called Brasilia is, and handing security over to the feds. This resulted in massive arrests of thousands of these protesters and mass detention of them. They are, as we speak, being ID'd and charged, like, right now. You know, that's extremely quick turnaround, especially when you compare it to prosecutions of people like Baked Alaska, who participated in an attempted coup, yeah, like, two years ago, and is only now being charged. Instead, in Brazil, this is happening within the week. They're also making arrests, uh, like, ordering arrests of former Bolsonaro justice minister, uh, a man named Anderson Torres, who is the head of security for Brasilia at the time, as in they're saying that you were involved in this attempted coup and we are going to charge you for it. They're also making investigations and arrests for those who funded the invasion, anybody who ran transportation for the invasion, etc. What I'm saying is the Brazilian state is not fucking around about this. They are going after the people responsible and not just the people responsible for actually invading the capital, but anybody who aided and abetted them. This is the response of a state that actually knows what happens when democracy is challenged in this particular way and knows that the only way to respond is by force. You have to actually stop these people. In the United States press, there's been a lot of comparing this to the invasion of the Capitol building on January 6th, saying, you know, like, oh, this is a warning for those of us in the United States. This is a warning for people uh, dealing with those who are confronting democracy. I think that that's ass backwards. The fact is that Brazil is handling this well. They are dealing with it seriously and quickly. They're quickly going after the major perpetrators of it. They're immediately saying like, hey, we're going we're gonna to deal with the actual leaders who are responsible for it, including former government ministers and potentially including Bolsonaro himself. The United States in its handling of January 6th is not the example. We're the cautionary tale. We have waited so long to deal with this to the point that like, Now, the apparatuses of the federal government that were trying to do something about this, namely the House of Representatives, have been lost by the people who are going to do anything about it at all. So Brazil is the example to look for here. Finally going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about Galeazzo Ciano, the probable successor to Italian fascist leader Benito Mussolini. Ciano was born in the Tuscan coast in 1901. His father was an admiral in the Italian Navy in World War I. Ciano became a diplomat in Italy after World War I, and with his father was an early supporter of Benito Mussolini. They participated in the March on Rome, which was the Italian Fascist Party's takeover of Rome in the 1920s. In 1930, long after Mussolini had taken power, Ciano married Mussolini's daughter, Edda, and thereby became Mussolini's son-in-law. He served in Italy's invasion of Ethiopia and eventually became Italy's foreign minister. This was not just nepotism. he had been a diplomat and just like sort of socialite person for oh, you know several decades at this point. However, he was also being clearly groomed as Mussolini's successor prior to the start of World War II. and it seemed like this was a pretty secure deal for Tiano, and that it was actually very satisfying to Mussolini himself. However, after Italy's engagement in World War II, which, recall, was Germany's game, not Italy's, Gianno was a major, major critic of Mussolini's alliance with Hitler and Italy's invasion of Greece and its other involvements in military operations in World War II. He thought that Italy was massively overstretched and outgunned when it came to fighting the Allies. He was, of course, right about this, and this made him ultimately a distanced part of the Italian state. He was pushed aside as things got worse, and his predictions rang true. He was eventually removed from his position as the foreign minister, but was kept both close and at arm's length as the ambassador to the Holy See. He cooperated with other leaders in the fascist party when Mussolini was removed from power after the Allied invasion of Sicily in 1943. He then fled to Germany uh, after himself being ousted for his connection to Mussolini once the Italian state was reorganized in 1943. The Germans then returned him to the Italian puppet state, led by Benito Mussolini, that they set up, and Mussolini had him summarily arrested, tried, and executed, along with several other people that Germany had handed over to him this week in history, January the 11th, 1944. So, Galetsu Chiano, we will see you in hell. All right, that was Fifteen Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on, and tell friends, family, comrades, and colleagues about the podcast. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me at Gmail, 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at HIST of the Right, that's H-I-S-T of the Right, and also Fascism15. All right, thank you very much, and I will talk to you next week.